Support for Filmmaker Toolkit comes from HBO Documentary Films, presenting The Janes, the story of an underground network of women in Chicago in the late 60s and early 70s who provided safe, affordable, illegal abortions to women in need. This cautionary tale, directed by Tia Lesson and Emma Pildes, is a jarring reminder of what is at stake as abortion providers in the United States and the women they serve are forced back underground. The story of the Janes is our past and also now very much our present. For your Academy Award consideration, best documentary feature, and now streaming on HBO Max. Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, Executive Editor of Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. And today we're talking about one of my favorite films of the year, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is this incredible portrait of the life, art, and activism of photographer Nan Golden. And I got to interview someone that I've wanted to have on the podcast for a really long time, director Laura Poitras. Joining Laura is one of her editors on the film, Amy Foote. And if you haven't seen this film yet, and you really should see this film, I guess the one thing you need to know going into this interview view is that in addition to being one of the great photographers of her generation, Nan Golden is also one of the leaders of Pain. Pain is the organization that led the protests against the Sackler family, specifically to have uh, their family's name removed from the big art institutions around the globe. Uh, the Sacklers, of course, are most easily associated with being the villain of the opioid crisis. Their lies led to so much death and destruction that they left in their wake. Uh, one of their victims was Nan Golden, who is a recovering addict. And what's amazing about this film is the way that Amy and Laura move between Nan's childhood, becoming an artist, and developing as an artist, and then her life as an activist. And the way that this film is structured is just incredible, the way these three things meld together. Um, it's really a monumental piece of work, and it was really interesting to talk to Laura and Amy about how they pieced it together. You know, I think it's probably a mistake, Laura, to to necessarily separate your activism, your political beliefs, and you as a person and, and your filmmaking. My guess is they're all part and parcel, and that's probably true of a lot of great artists. But I am curious where in the process of filming Nan and, I guess, filming uh, Payne's protests against the Sacklers, did you see just the incredible potential that her activism was to opening the door to telling the story of her life and art? Because I have to imagine there was a moment where it was like, holy cow, there's something here. When Nan came out of rehab and she read Patrick Radins Keefe's article and she said she needed to do something about the about the Sackler family and she's going to create an organization and then she publishes this essay in art form that you hear in, in the film and then they do their first action soon after and that is at the Met. And that's how the film opens. You know, this was Nan. We should, you know, create an organization. We should also document our work and, you know, with the intention of, of making a documentary. So she had done that. And, you know, of course, I know Nan's work. We had met casually in some, we had a film festival in 2014 when I was releasing Citizen Four. Um, of course, I love her work I've, I've, and I've known it, you know, for as long as I've been a filmmaker. And that was in 2018. And then about a year and a half later, they were still doing the protest, and um, uh, we happened to have uh, breakfast together, and she told me about the film. I was just sort of over the moon that she was documenting what they were doing, because I was such a big supporter. And then she told me in that meeting that she was looking for, she wanted to bring people on. She was looking for producers, and, and you know, as I sort of described it, it's like I became really obsessed, reached out, and then got involved at that point. When in the process of filming, did you start to see, I mean, obviously there's always this connection between someone's life and their art, 
and, and in this case, obviously, Nan's activism, was there an element when you were filming this or your time with Nan where you started to see um, something here that could really carry a feature here? Or, you know, there's, that's always such a big part of someone's life here, the connection between these things. I mean, probably in your own life, you know, Laura Poitras's life, that idea that you wouldn't separate your filmmaking from you, the person. But I'm wondering that idea of something that you wanted to explore. Was there a part there when you were? Yeah, I mean, I I think in the, the real shift happened in the process, you know, we'd been filming, we'd gotten um, the footage from, from um, pain of the actions, we were reviewing that, we had parts of Nan's archive, and then in the beginning, I think it was, might have been January um, 2020, we did the first audio interview, and that really was a pivot point the, between Nan, when Nan and I first sat down. And that was soon after Joe Beanie joined the project editor. and. Um, and, and those interviews, it just opened up a different space. And um, in terms of a, a, a kind of how, you know, as you're saying, could carry the film, there was something about Nan's voice and, and how she spoke. That was something I didn't, I didn't, you know, know would happen, right? You know, I'd spent time with her, I'd filmed actions and I was filming her in her studio, but to do these um, uh, very intimate audio only conversations. And, and Joe was sort of, listening to everything and he he heard this and he said wow there's really something here and he was talking about the the dialogue between us that it was a conversation and that it's sort of an intimate conversation between two women and and then he said he was he he at, at that point he was watching stuff and he said let me I need to write and like let me step back I'm not going to talk to you for a few days um and he came back with this document which was a sort of, which he described as a dramaturgy document, which was divided into these chapters and had themes around each of the chapters. Um, and, and that kind of created a sort of a focus. So, I mean, the first one that, you, it's a, you know, and a lot of the, the, the chapter titles that he named changed, but the themes kind of stayed in there. And so the, the first one is merciless logic. And this is, I mean, that, which is a, something that has meaning at different points in the film. At first, you don't know quite what it means. Um, and then you, you, you learn more about um, Nan and her, and her sister, Barbara. Um, and that, it, you know, so it's this Conrad quote that comes up late in the film. But, but what it's sort of represented is this kind of brutality of society. So this merciless logic, this idea of, you know, this cruel society that we live in. And that was going to be a theme of the film, which sort of begins with, we learn about, Nan's sister Barbara and her suicide, which of course is a tragedy, but there's the line that her mother says when she says, tell the children it was an accident. And Nan describes it like that's when it clicked. And that kind of betrayal, right? The betrayal of the truth is society's efforts to suppress reality and just kind of rejecting that and being cast onto this other path. And all that sort of happened in these sort of, once we got these audio interviews and, and Joe came back with this document, but and then we were like think, just thinking about themes, like what is the theme of each chapter? And then the theme of each chapter would then say, okay, how can we, who, what do we need to tell in this? Both in the inner story, which is more Nan's dialogue and the people we meet from the past and the sort of contemporary story. And how are those juxtaposed? And that was one of the main things. And then I think another thing that knew early going is that there was gonna be this convergence of the past and the present with witnesses against our vanishing, that there's this kind of like history repeating itself, Nan experiencing in her life two crises in this country. They're devastating and she lost, she loses so much. 
and that we wanted to put those two things in dialogue with each other. That was going to be a sort of converging moment in later in the film. But with all that said, it, that those were just a map. It's not like then, oh, the film was, it just unfolded from there. But it gave us some sort of organizing principles and also helped to filter, okay, what was relevant to tell and what did we not need to tell in this film? Because we weren't going to tell a biography. It wasn't going to include every chapter of Nan's life, every professional accomplishment. No, there are no curators really in the film, for instance, speaking about Nan's role in the art world. One thing I'm sure that Joe heard, because we all heard, is just her voice. And we talked about this before, is uh, I'm wondering, and there's a quality in these, I assume these are interviews, right? These are interviews. I'm wondering, are you, is she on camera while you're doing this is that were you shooting these as normal kind of on-camera interviews because they're, I wonder how different these are from other things that you've done because there's just this intimacy and in her voice and, and Amy just the quality of her voice and the, the way she speaks I'm wondering if you just talk about because um, I'm sure what he was hearing and I want to talk about that external internal idea that was also in the basis of this but what were the mechanics of those interviews Laura? I mean I can say that we never did a, a an on-camera interview they were only audio and it was immediately apparent that there, there was something special about them and there was also a trying at least what I tried to do as a filmmaker is to not hear the story that people repeat about their life over and over we all do that we all tell a story and we go into a kind of a mode of repeating but how could it feel in the present in a really meaningful way. Once we put them next to Nan's photographs, something really special happens because there is this rawness to her photographs, sort of really, really intimate quality to them. And her voice has that in, in all of its, the silences, obviously her brilliant storytelling and choice of words. And then I think also feeling very in the moment. Julie Reichardt once told me, I think it was for American Factory, that there was an element of what she could achieve in a certain intimacy in an audio interview, even sometimes just even like a proximity with her subject. And Nan is obviously probably different than some of the subjects that she's dealing with, something with an American Factory, but that... And no, and she's an amazing interviewer and she did it to me. She once got me to tell me my life story in 15 minutes. She's a, she's remarkable. But it was this interesting thing where she said that with an audio thing, there was something there that she could do something and get a quality that she couldn't do when she rolled cameras. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it's not like I went in with a firm decision. We did have a budget which had a line for camera and lights that just never got used. And I kept saying, well, yeah, we're going to do that sometime. <laughs> so it wasn't like we were like had a definitive, we will not be doing, but it just, it was immediately apparent that there was something really special here, you know, and it also creates challenges because the editors don't have a face to cut to. But luckily, obviously, Nan has an amazing visual archive that is very rare to have in a film, which was what it makes it possible, like the section about David Armstrong and her being in foster care and running away from schools. That's alive because of the images and the, and how she's speaking about it. If we didn't have those images, it, I don't know that we could have told that story. And I wonder if you could talk about when you got involved, where the project was when you got involved, but also something that, that had come up in the previous conversation I was wondering if you could talk about. One of these ideas that kind of happened early and that happened in, with Joe and Laura in the beginning was this idea of this internal, external that kind of happened. I wonder if you could pick up on that as well. Yeah. So by the time I got involved, they had already been working quite a bit and had done, Laura had done a big bulk of the, I think about nine or 10 interviews by the time I started. And I think there was maybe eight or nine more, but it was clear that there was this language and sort of concept that was going to be established that, that in following these two different storylines, what they called the inner story, which Laura just talked about Nan's past through her photographs, her voice, her friends, her experiences, and then this forward action verite story 
following pain and all of their action. And in, in a way, this sort of, as we go deeper and deeper into Nan's personal story, this activism continues to advance on this other level. And when I got involved, like it, it's the, the pain storyline wasn't, I, the challenge of it is that actions can become redundant and they're saying similar chance at each one. So how to make them push the story forward and not feel one note. And especially after we go to the Guggenheim, where we really understand how pain conceptualizes their actions off of what the public is learning about through journalism, through the lawsuits. We see a whole action in all of its glory. So after that, we then can use shorthand for all the actions that follow and choose ones that really push the story forward. So in the Louvre, they now go to a global stage and the result is the Louvre takes down their name. Bankruptcy is the next action we go to. Shaping them so they're all advancing and not feeling repetitive. That was one of the big challenges with those scenes. Let's talk about Nan's art itself here. There's a line early on, she says, what is it that, that these, it, she no longer sees the art, she sees the memories or something. It's like the memories of these people and, and what you realize is these people are so much a part of her life and her friend. And that's something this film gets at there's a thing here in in particular with her discovering her art through david and suddenly you see that in those david photos and you see her becoming this photographer and you see her becoming this person through her photography of this person i'm wondering how i have to imagine there's moments and i think you probably were both huge fans of the work and knew the work beforehand was that something in this process that you just learn so much more about her and see these photos. That's one thing that I learned in through your film, but I have to imagine that's not only a breakthrough in terms of putting this together, but also a breakthrough in terms of learning this person. And I think the David thing is a, is a good example, right? Is that you've probably seen some of these photos before, but now it's, wow, this is Nan becoming Nan to a certain degree, Nan becoming the photographer, right? And there is a kind of, if you know her slideshows, there's a kind of they're repeating characters. You, you don't know Cookie Mueller's name, you don't know David Armstrong's name, but you come to know them. And with her way of storytelling, it's not explicit. There's not like the names are there. And so with the film, we were able to meet them in maybe a different way. With her archive, it was incredible. Things would come in that were just so breathtaking. Like there's one, she describes like one of the first pictures she took of David Armstrong was with his lover, Tommy, in a sand pit. She's like David and Tommy in a sand pit, which is a great photograph. It's a, we had a wide shot of it. And then late in the editing process, she said, oh, we found something. And then in comes from the studio is a close-up of David and Tommy in the sand pit, which is one of the most beautiful photographs in the film, I think. And these two young lovers, and, and there she is, this teenager who'd been given a Polaroid. And I don't know what other, who else would have that kind of archive of their teenage years where you could, and who's on a becoming or is a great artist, and to be able to tell that. And for me, it was really important that People talk about, it's a film about her art, but it's really like what makes people need to make art and this kind of finding voice. And that I think, I hope the film kind of gets at. Like that it's a lifeline, like that, that she describes in, in getting, meeting David and getting a camera as being a lifeline in a way to have a voice. And I think that's one of the things that re resonates because I think so many people go through life and then they find, oh, these are my people. This is my home now. I can survive. I can thrive. And then I was thinking, because you asked when we talked earlier about this, the sort of slideshow. Obviously, there are stills. It's a film that's told with a lot of stills. We haven't really actually ever sat down to map out how many of it is stills and moving or video. But there's also something about the 
like when you see the slide, how a slide drops in the gate, there's this kind of, and Matt Hickson, our associate editor, described it as a trap door. And you sort of like drop into something and you're like, oh, here's something that I wasn't expecting and in the gate and then it moves on and you're catapulted back out. And I think that was something that we were also trying to work with from a narrative perspective so that you meet David Armstrong. It's like that, that like a trap door. Okay, we're meeting him and there's a reason why we're meeting him. You might not know the reason, but hopefully it resolves and it makes sense. You do capture the slideshow feeling in it, right? That was something that was almost important, right? Was that it wouldn't have worked if it was just cut to a still in a documentary sense. You had to, and even if you didn't make that reference to it being that's how people saw Nan's photos, it was like almost important for that feeling, right? For that element. Yeah, yeah. Like we wanted both to explain a bit the mechanics of, of her art so that the audience kind of understands what is a slideshow. You, those who don't remember the analog carousel of Made by Kodak. And, and so it was important in that. And then also, yeah, it is, it's, it's a theme. It's crazy though, because I imagine there is, I imagine you both come, came to appreciate, and maybe Nan was involved in this, I don't know, the art of the slideshow, right? Because I imagine there's a thing here, I guess it's not completely different than editing, but there is this element of which photo is going to register where it's a different thing what you're doing in the documentary because you're also trying to, it's part of that larger story. But I imagine there was an element of which photos to use, how many to use, how quick, right? To to get to the larger thing that you were doing. Yeah, for sure. And and that's, I mean, Nan is- Did she come in? Did she kind of had some very strong opinions? Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> believe, believe me, she came in and had some very strong opinions. Are you kidding? Yeah, no, absolutely. And in, in lots of different ways, there were some, there's a section where like, we're just talking about, I think it was Daryl Pinkney talking about the cinematic quality of her, of her photographs. And those are ones where she was like, okay, we need different photos. You know, she came in and she, the, the images we're using, she was pulling. And, and then also in the, in this, this, the narrative of her friends and family, she was very involved in that editing process. You know what I meant to ask? Some of the archival footage, some of that is obviously from Betty Gordon's films and the other films. Is that all from the films or is, is anything that wasn't from that? Was that from one of their films or was it something that Nan shot? There was a few things there that I was like, I was wondering if that was something that Nan had shot, just some of the video footage. There's a little bit of Super 8 of the Queens in Boston, this black and white that I, I'm not sure if it was Nan, but I believe. And then there's, as you say, there's Vivian Digg who, you know, generously shared with us outtakes, things that haven't been retransferred and shared with us outtakes and Betty Gordon. And then there's new archival footage like the Provincetown footage which hasn't been seen before there's a thing here that i loved about capturing a sense of place and time do you know maybe provincetown those first two summers they were there may it be when they were at pintan alley at that time period there's a thing here where without some of the normal part of it is it's in the art you know part of it is in the descriptions but there's just a yeah i think of the normal way that films try to capture a sense of time and place and this one was so rich and I really felt like a sense of being with a community in a place and time. And I guess to a certain degree, maybe the credit can go to the art itself. But it does feel that I wonder if that's something that you guys were very conscious of as you were moving through her life, because these places and these times, like even just the Bowery, maybe it's Nan's description. I don't know that there was that many images of that 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 loft that they were in the Bowery, but it just, it, it, the texture and feeling there, I just had, it was so evocative. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. For sure, that really, I'll let Amy dive in, but yeah, I think Joe, Amy and I were really insistent upon that. The, the material tells you what you can use and what stories you, you're able to tell and what you can't tell with, without 
material that can bring to life, I think, the sections that you know, we focus on. We wouldn't have been able to do it or we would have chosen the what the material supported in a way, but we definitely wanted to be immersed in in the period that we were in. Yeah, and a huge shout out to our archival team for digging up so many amazing archives from Provincetown. But I think there's not, there, there was clear that we were not making a biopic and that this was not going to be told conventionally and that the stories we t- tell come from Nan and her art and what other things we could find to support that. But there was no need to sort of like, let's establish New York City and in that any traditional way. So it was so fun to, because her images pull you right into a place. Yeah, and we had certain obsessions. I think we were all super obsessed with Tin Pan Alley and Maggie Smith. We just all fell in love with her and that as a place that was so not where you imagine an artist coming to New York is going to find her community. And Maggie almost, she wasn't technically Nan's gallerist or representative, but she was always going to Nan when she showed her work. It was really a champion, and that's just amazing, this female-run bar in Times Square. I want to go back to that original document that Joe wrote, and which sounds like the underpinnings with which kind of stayed true. I don't know, show Bible of some sort or some kind of underpinning of which became a guiding light of uh, for the project. But now talk a little bit about the fact that you, this is a project that is going to be moving between different elements. Obviously, you've got the narrative of pain kind of 2018 to, or when, because the ending happens while you're still filming. So this is the, that, that stuff in the, wasn't that long ago, right? Was it earlier this year? Earlier this year, yeah. 2022. Mm-hmm. So you have that, which some of this is you've been filming, you know, that current documentary of pain and its battle against Sackler. And then, of course, you've got Nan's life as a child, and then you've got her activism, you've got her art, you've got her side. You've got all these different narratives moving, and the way that we're moving through her life is it, it, we're moving in different ways. And there is obviously strong connections, but I imagine that the way that those pieces were going to fit together was something that was constantly being finessed and something that I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in terms of moving those pieces around and how you ended up finding connections and maybe discovering connections. That document was really our guiding principle, especially for the inner stories. I think those changed over time and with Nan's involvement with wanting to add depth and more detail. But with the, I think in a way the pain storyline c- could be more flexible to relate to the themes that were coming from the inner story. And it's always trial and error and intuitive and the magic of not knowing the connection and then feeling it once you put things together. And one of the, one of the challenges we had with the structure was after witnesses and when sort of these past and present converge, like Laura was saying before, this convergence of, of these two crises and David as being somebody who Nan has continued to be inspired by and, and that experience has helped her navigate this current crisis. But after that, we needed to make sure that the audience did not think the film was going to be wrapping up after that because we knew there was bankruptcy to get to and other important parts of Nan's story, like the sort of trapdoor slideshows was something that we really utilized in that moment to, after the Louvre action, it's, there's a slide that says escape hatch. And then it, we start that chapter in a very different way than the others. And it starts with Laura asking Nan a very intimate question with very sort of abstract imagery to say, okay, no, we're not wrapping up. This is now 
we're shifting and this is going to keep going and go into it even a deeper place. Yeah, I think that that was the toughest point from a structure perspective. At one point I had this, the terrible idea of, I think I shared it with Joe and I was like, Maybe we're going to have an intermission in this film. There's going to be, it's going to be five acts. No, yeah, that, you shared that with me after our first rough cut. But that nobody liked that idea. And it, 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 you know, I said, I believe in the intermission. I can only imagine if that you were, I don't know, was it, I don't remember what festival this premiered at, but if suddenly there was the, okay, it's a five, a 10 minute break, everybody has to go to the lobby in this, during this documentary, I can imagine the film press reacting. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting about the, the witnesses, because I think maybe when that, I don't want to mischaracterize, that almost feels a galvanizing moment for Nan in the past in terms of her activism, right? It feels like a culmination of certain things in terms of the life she's lived, in terms of, and, and, and almost connecting that past to what she's doing right now with pain. And it feels like maybe where that lands, there's got to be a balance here of where these things come. And I imagine that's the whole, that's the whole enchilada, right? Is that the, you can understand how yeah, these things in your and, head intellectually, but emotionally how an audience is going to connect them and carry from one piece to the other is probably very difficult. Yeah. And it's all about, in the end, about these kind of emotional through lines. They have to work. You have to feel like you're like in the sort of flow of the film. And yeah, and it doesn't work until it works. And it doesn't work for a long time. And every film I've ever cut, I worked on. Yeah, and so there is this kind of reset after, after that moment to signal to the audience, we're not, this is not wrapping up. We're not in the final part of act three. And what things we put after that, the end of Witnesses changed also, you know, we tried this, we tried that, but we really needed to connect it to this forward momentum of her activism and how she's gonna up the ante. They're going to Paris, they're going to the Louvre, they're getting in the fountain. So it was interesting, all the different things we tried after that. And that one had the most hit you on, on an emotional level that you really needed after coming out of the end of Witnesses and the death of so many of her friends. I think the thing that hit me the most was some of the backstory for her, some of the personal stuff in the backstory. We don't have to talk about the specifics of it, how late some of that stuff came. And yet it did not feel to me, sometimes documentaries do this where they hold it almost like the secret, like it's a reveal. It never felt like you were holding that for me. You know, this is the part, it's like almost like this thing that we were unraveling. It never felt like that to me, but yet it came late enough that it had this emotional impact for me that it naturally stemmed, it naturally folded out of. And I think that's some of the magic here. And when I rewatched it, it just, it was stunning to me how little of it was there was of that in terms of screen time. Cause I think in my head, that stuff was a lot bigger part of the movie after I watched it the first time. Yeah, I mean, it was really, I mean, this was probably both what to say at the beginning, what was important to say at the beginning of the film and what was too much to say. And there's, it's just really important in, in every film, but particularly when dealing with something that has so much tragedy and loss that the audience has the capacity at that point in the film to feel right and that you don't always when you're at the beginning of a film you're finding your way right and you're you're so like are they connecting emotionally what do we need to say and yeah we weren't trying to play any games like oh we're gonna we're withholding something but we did feel that we needed it was always it we oh the structure always had two two sections that that was about Nan's sister brother and the line that she says in the second section which is, what do you do when people basically gaslight you about your experience? When I first heard that, I said, oh, this should frame the film. This needs to go up top. And when we played with it and when it went up top, it, it didn't mean anything. It was just exposition in a way because you hadn't experienced her life through her work and her photography. So when it comes at the end, it's just so much more 
meaningful and satisfying than as this lens to see her work through. We're talking quite a bit about the um, the blessing in the raw material of the gift of this film. Let's finish off with what is not the filmmaker's dream here, which is a lot of exposition and zooms and bankruptcy, which is not why any of you all got involved in filmmaking or probably what drives your juices, but is a huge part of trying to tell this story and how you handled it, because it does, and the proof is in the pudding here, it does feel like a successful third act. It is vital in terms of telling this story. You know, we talked about this before, where it's the sense where it's, it, you can't give a false hope here. You know, Nan and her pain group does move the ball, gives some sense of hope, but I mean, the Sacklers aren't, aren't in jail. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, Laura, first, from a filming standpoint, that idea of even how you were going to film that. And then Amy, that if you can follow it up, dealing with exposition and dealing with bankruptcy and how you were able to deal with that as efficiently as you guys did in the editing room. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's a challenge. I mean, there's one scene, I think that Joe was like, Oh, this is just looks so awful, which is there's a, there's a meeting with bankruptcy with the lawyer, Mike Quinn, who's on the talking to the judge. And then it's Nan and Mike and, and members of pain. It's just, it looks bad, but it was just really important because, you know, in it, we kind of get the debrief, like they're getting away with it. There's going to be no criminal charges. You know, the Sackler family are getting away with it and there's going to be a bankruptcy deal and like how corrupt that was. And, and so it was one of those choices where like the story, you know, ultimately trumped the visual, how it looked, the aesthetic. And I think in a film, you can kind of get away with that sort of like sometimes if you maybe have a bad audio recording, you can't get away with it for all of a film, but maybe you can have one scene that maybe is not as beautiful aesthetically. And then, yeah, and then there's some other scenes. And, uh, there's the scene where you finally see the Sackler faces and that they're being transmitted. And in a way, that's a blessing because that it was Zoom because we were able to, you, you can't really bring a camera into federal court, but I was able to film their faces on a, on a monitor. That son's face, though, is perfect, though. I guess there is just a blank, like, slouched in the thing. is kind of like, through Zoom, it's almost iconic like that, I guess. Yeah. And then, it, I mean, it's, an, you know, like, that was where, they, where the Sacklers had to witness the, you know, the suffering of people. And that, that then we knew we had that, okay, like, the, there was some sense of closure in the story. And that came late in the, in the filming. And I think there's this 911 call of a mother screaming, which kind of, you know, summarizes what the film is about, right? I mean, this cruel, horrible society that we live in that doesn't hold people accountable who are responsible for such you know, devastation. The only thing I would add to that is, is, you know, bankruptcy was something that was always so important to Laura to put in. And I understood, you know, intellectually why it was important, but I was like, how are we ever going to show any of this? And the thing about that Zoom call, yes, it's, ugly to look at. You, know, you really get a sense of how small they are and, you know, how, what they're up against. So they joke about, oh, remember we start, we started in our living room and you're doing this pro bono and this is crazy, but we're doing it. And that was the one scene that really was so clear. So it, it just, it helped. So because we tried to tell that story in, in the simplest way possible, that really helped humanize it without getting into the weeds of bankruptcy court, which would have been impossible. Well, it is a wonderful film, and I appreciate you both for your time, times two. I really, I can't appreciate it enough, and it's really wonderful. When this comes out, it will be right at that weekend that it expands, the movie expands beyond New York and Los Angeles, so everybody should go see 
the movie. It's in theaters. It's really wonderful. It's probably my favorite one of the year. And I, it's just a beautiful portrait of an artist and her activism and her as a person. It's fantastic. Thank you, Chris.